0: Welcome to Wood Talk, for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who put
1: the fine in fine woodworking. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Yeah, that's right. We're fine. It's uh, Wood Talk number 148 for September 11th, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about mineral oil spills, bit and brace advantages, wood movement in large panels, power hand planers for flattening boards, replaceable cutters versus traditional turning tools, and planer snipe, everybody's favorite. But before we get to that, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Today's show is supported by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. And by Arbortech, makers of creative wood shaping tools. Exciting news, the Arbortech Mini Turbo is now available for pre-order. The Mini Turbo is ideal for deep internal profiles and it's outstanding for free-form shapes. Contact the Arbortech team at arbortechusa.com to reserve your mini turbo before it hits the stores. You know, I don't have to reserve mine because it's sitting on my desk right now. Oh, Ooh. braggart. That's, that's <laughs> just how I roll over here. All right, let's move into what's on the bench right away. I'll go first. All I have to say is football and woodworking. I don't know two things that go better. It's like uh, It's like peanut butter and chocolate to me.
0: I really Keys hope that entrance. you've got some safety devices on the machines while you're in there throwing that ball around. <laughs> huh,
1: huh, huh. <laughs> um yeah, it's it's the this whole like when you live in Arizona and to us like our summer is like winter for everyone. We hibernate in the summer and we hide from the heat. And then it starts to cool off, and football is on, and it's just, to me, it's one of my favorite woodworking seasons as, as things start to kind of chill out a little bit. So it's great. I had football on on Sunday. Nicole took the kid over to her mom's, and I had a full day of woodworking with football on in the background. It was just one of those great woodworking days. Loved it. You know, I just this season, finally, I've started to be able to get um,
2: University of Colorado games, my alma mater, mm-hmm. um, over, the, over the web. for free oh cool cool Um, there was always a way that you could do it you know if you subscribe to something and you know i i follow college football but i follow my team you know despite their 10 consecutive seasons of losing horribly and (laughs) finally you know you can't get it out here there's no colorado football on in maryland and now i found an app um that they broadcast everything through, and the last couple of Saturdays have just been awesome.
1: Mm, that's awesome. You know,
2: it's it's audio, which I think allows me to work a little bit more. The, mm-hmm. I was the same way on Sunday. I had football on the TV in there. I didn't get very much done. <laughs> but, it does, It
1: is a little distracting. I mean, especially if you're interested in the game. But uh, overall, just the whole the, the whole vibe just feels really good. Um, on a more of a woodworking esque topic, I was doing the arched handles that that uh, are featured on this blanket chest. They're basically traditional green and green arched handles and I'm using the method that was outlined by Daryl Peart in his new book. So if you want to check that out, it's, uh, it's, it's really cool. But I wanted to demonstrate the process and it was one that as I was reading it, I wasn't quite comfortable with what was going on with the way part of it was done. And it started me down this path of thinking about things that that we do sometimes once we have enough experience that maybe you know safety is not a all or none thing right it's it's a scale so there are some things that go on the other end where they're a little bit more dangerous than you might normally want to do like and you can't really come up with better ways to safeguard it. And there's things that are on the you know super safe end of the scale. So this is one that I think once you have a certain amount of experience under your belt, you feel a little more comfortable doing this. And yeah, there's a little bit more risk to it, but you have a certain amount of confidence and like the tactile feedback of woodworking that you know how to, to to do this operation. Anyway, all this is to say that what I was trying to do is route a cove on a curved workpiece so that what you do is have a curved profile fence that the workpiece with the curve follows and then the the cove is actually cut at the front of the workpiece. So in essence, you have to feed in the opposite direction that you normally would feed at the router table. So you're feeding from left to right because the workpiece is behind the bit. It's between the bit and the fence. So you're with me here? Yeah, I'm already sweating, <laughs> Matt, seriously. Well, Matt and Routers, they've got a, a long history <laughs> together, so Mark, I can see why. can you why.
0: hold this for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: so the problem is the workpiece is curved, so you're trying to match the angle of the curve, and beca- just because the curve of the workpiece matches the curve of the fence doesn't mean it matches it in all places. So at the start, you have to angle the workpiece in a little bit, and I've got feather boards, and little tiny feather boards, one on each side, but because the piece is arched, it's actually thicker in the middle than it is at the ends. So trying to get this piece through the router, granted in the book, it looks so straightforward and it looks like, well, this is you know piece of cake. But I had my apprehensions about it and when I started to put the whole thing together in the shop, I'm just like, man, I do not feel completely comfortable telling people to do it this way. Um, so I was wondering like, with you guys, how often do you confront? I mean, Shannon, you probably don't so much because you're—it's <laughs> fairly predictable hand tool work. It's usually with power tools that we tend to contemplate some of these slightly more risky operations at the because you need to get the job done. So right. if there's only one way that you can think of to do it, then you just got to do it. You know, I mean, how often do you come across something like that? And do you? Do you can it and say, forget it, I'm not doing it, or do you go through with it and give it a shot? I guess more for Matt. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah.
0: well, no, I, I definitely have been in this situation and I I find myself it's almost like a stutter start. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I I've convinced myself this is the only way I can do it. And I will say probably in the past three or four projects maybe one of them I've had something where I I need to do something and coincidentally it was on the router yeah and I I do find that where I'm like I will spend more time debating like is this really truly the only way I can do it I'll try and look stuff up online but then you do get to that point it's like it's an all or nothing you just have to jump in and just do it and yeah I, I won't say hope for the best because obviously if you've thought enough about it you've thought about the the way that you approach it and what's the worst case scenario, losing all your fingers, uh, and and, and going from there. So yeah, there are just certain aspects sometimes that it's kind of a, you hope nobody else is watching because you don't want to hear about it.
1: Yeah. Meanwhile, my camera's in my face as I'm trying to show (laughs) guild members how to do this. Well, the good thing was I got it to the point, and at this point in my woodworking, everything I do, I'm going to take enough precautions to keep me safe you know right. for the most part you know barring some weird uh, crazy disastrous thing happening but um what would most likely happen in this situation is the workpiece would be destroyed Uh, So so that's, you know, still that would really suck. Um, But it was just a weird, I I don't run into that very often. But then again, I'm not doing like reproduction work. I'm never, like if I can't hit a goal with my particular uh, mental and actual physical tool set, if I can't hit that goal, I might
0: just change the goal to do something that I can do (laughs) safely, you know. Yeah, because there's been times that I've, in some situations I've looked at it I'm like how crucial is this particular detail is there something (laughs) I could do like a faux version of it where maybe I'll be the only person that knows that this is you know not true to the original and if that's again if that's a situation how detrimental is it not being true to the real situation
2: yeah yeah totally that's probably how I ended up where I did so the answer to that question is I think your original question was do you just can it and try something else yeah (laughs) That's why I work with hand tools now. <laughs> right. I was just a big chicken, basically, and routers just scared the crap out of me. So I, I got really good with the spoke shape.
1: Right. Yeah. I well, think that's, well, and this is not one that of those-
2: hand tools are completely injury free for the people that are going to comment on this episode later.
1: <laughs> yeah no, of course not and, and some of my I mean if you're safe around your power tools some of your worst injuries may very well come from hand tools you know just because you've got this razor sharp thing just a couple inches from your fingertips and I've I've cut myself more times on the side of a Lee Nielsen mortising chisel because <laughs> yes. it's so damn sharp um, you know but uh, anyway but I digress uh, so yeah that's what I've been going through um, how about you Matt? Well,
0: not a lot has been happening in the shop. Uh, the reason why I was absent last week is my kids have back to back birthdays. They're only about seven days apart from each other. Wow. So I will just finish up my little section here by saying I ate a lot of cake mm, in the cake. time that I was gone.
2: <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Did you bring so, some for us? I want
0: cake. I did, but then I decided to eat it. So, <laughs> <I ate laughs> let some. me tell you something, guys. It was really good, and you would have enjoyed it. Oh, nice. Thanks. I don't so like... that that's all I have. But Shannon, uh, you're you're throwing away all your clamps. <laughs> no,
2: no, oh. I, I don't have um, I don't have a monster uh, a clamp wall like Mark. What uh, you should? <laughs> what? But uh, I have quite a few. <clears throat> and and I can second Mark's recommendation for the jet parallel clamp. I like those much better than Bessie. Really? Just so we can throw down that gauntlet. There. Why is
1: that yeah. though? I'm curious.
2: I don't know. The jaw is is bigger. It feels more stable. Now I have the older version Bessies. I they probably changed them. Yeah. Since that, then. Okay. Um, so then that
1: makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. Probably.
2: But regardless, I um I don't use that many of them. It seems like the last couple of projects I've done a lot of sub assemblies, so I'll use like three or four clamps. Um, and it's rare that I actually get into the big 48-inchers. Um, that's the largest ones I have. I've never – if I need bigger than that, I use a the, the couple of 8-inch pipe clamps that I have. But I rarely do it. I use a lot of 24-inchers and the occasional 36-incher. <clears throat> and I was just gluing up parts for um, – I had to glue up three big panels for this um, flywheel that I'm making for this lathe. And I cleared the clamp rack. And nice. it was just like – you know, there's that old, you can't ever have too many clamps. And for a while there, I starting to think, man, maybe I do have too many clamps because some of them, like I had an inch of dust on them that had been so long since I used them. <laughs> right. But boy, it was nice. You know, I cleared that clamp rack and I was like, all right, this is good stuff. It was a very satisfying feeling. Cleaning the slate a little back. bit. Yep. There's another clamp there. There's another one and just be able to clamp the crap out of these panels. And, uh, you know, I, I
1: it's funny because I even filmed it. Look, look, empty clamp rack. Nice. This never happens. This is awesome. Yeah, You know, clamps are one of those things, though. Sometimes you have that one clamp that you just don't really use that often, but get rid of it and watch the next project. There's oh, going to yes. be something you go like, oh, where is that clamp? <laughs> I need that one.
0: I wonder if it's a subconscious thing, Could Like be. you don't even realize you're doing it until after it's gone, and then you <laughs> go to figure out your next project, and you're like, Hmm. And you're deep down inside your mentals like going, yeah, let's mess with him. It created a need for it. so nice.
1: Well, that's cool. All
0: right, so let's jump
1: into what's new. Got a couple of links to share with you here. I've got one that was uh, brought to my attention on Twitter actually from a couple of my friends from the gaming community. Someone is creating a Hearthstone box. And if you're not familiar with Hearthstone, it's a new game that's uh, it's only out in beta right now. It should be out fairly soon from Blizzard, the, the company that makes World of Warcraft. And it's a trading card game, but a digital version that'll be on iPad and all that stuff. It's going to be awesome. Um, I have played the beta. Fantastic. But anyways, this dude decided that the box itself, like when you open up the game, there's a little digital rendering of a box that holds your cards. And it's this gorgeous thing. I mean, it looks absolutely awesome. He decided he was going to build one in real life. So oh, wow. yeah, he's got a blog dedicated to the construction, his, his, um, everything that he's doing to actually make this thing. Uh, it's at smartwood.weebly.com and he's got a number of blog posts as he's going through this process and it looks like he's going to nail it. I mean, the, the way he's doing it, he's uh, drawing everything out, planning it, he's routing all the pieces. Um, it really looks like it's going to start to come together. So I am keeping my eye on this. The guy says his name is Steve, so give him credit, Steve. You don't have a last name, but <laughs> so let me make sure it's Steve Hearthstone now. Yes, it is. So well done and very cool. I can't wait to uh, see this come together. That's awesome. Yeah. Good stuff.
2: Well, this is, I'm surprised this hasn't gotten a little bit more. Um, I don't know. Notice uh, in the woodworking world, but there was an article. I don't even remember where I first saw it, but uh, Facebook now has a wood shop for their employees. Mm-hmm. Say what? Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And it's like, Pimped out, it's huge and I guess you know in the the ongoing battle of you know employee perks and reasons to work at different places, Facebook's always been a little bit I don't know I guess in a good way radical with some of the, the um, policies they have and I guess their thought behind this is in order for you to be creative at work, creative in the site and Facebook and things like that, you need to be creative like tactile physically. You need to go and create things with your hands in order to stir up the creative coding, I guess. And um, that just so resonated with me because, you know, I hear it every single day. I know I feel it myself. There's so many, um, in the online community anyway, woodworkers that sit in a cube all day. There's a lot of programmers that woodwork. And I just feel that, you know, you spend all day long making something virtual. You you feel like you're missing something until you make something actually that is actually tangible. And it seems like Facebook kind of figured it out. And it's just awesome. There's a there's a little video, uh, it shows some of the guys at work and they're building certain things. And it's just, it's really cool. Other companies should pay attention to this.
1: I thought it was awesome too, and, and someone else posted a link, I guess Google had done something similar at one of their locations for their employees. <laughs> they have now, <laughs> yeah, and the funny the funny thing though, if you read like I posted this on Facebook, and of course, the comments were hilarious just in terms of like Facebook being unable unable to build something without then changing it two seconds later or making it so confusing nice. that you don't know how to use it, uh, so there were a lot of great jokes about that, but um the funny thing was a lot of people were like kind of like nasty about it like oh they're just going to cut their fingers off a bunch of, and then they're going to sue people and it's just like oh, settle down I mean they're yeah they they might be beginner woodworkers but it, or, weren't we all at some point like they're not going to automatically just cut limbs off because someone gave them a power toll you know oh, exactly. <laughs> people were so mean about it I was like yeah, settle down people it's a good thing it's a good thing I think and people that, are just that is jealous. Typically,
2: that's typically indicative of the world outside the woodworking community online. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're just nasty.
1: Nasty peoples. Cool. Uh, all right. So what do we have next? Poll of the We're week. On the poll of the week. Poll of the week. Hey, Matt, poll do you happen to have a poll of the week this week? We haven't done no, that in a No, I've been trying to
0: stay away from as many polls as possible <laughs> because I got flooded with Polish emails.
1: Oh, I can see that, that
2: being a problem. Wait, didn't you take a poll dancing course though?
0: Um, funny,
1: (laughs) very nice, (laughs) not really.
0: Okay, so uh, Tom came up with nothing for that. That's really sad. I just suddenly had a nothing moment. No good comebacks for that. No,
1: (laughs) you're out of practice Um,
0: at one in the morning, Shannon. You're gonna get a text. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's gonna be a zinger, too. Yeah, well, (laughs) nice. (laughs) All right, well,
1: Tom came up with this poll as usual. Tom Ivino at tomsworkbench.com, and he asked the question. What do you think of traditional tool belts? Do you guys use a tool belt in the
0: shop? Nope. Mm, I got one for Christmas when I first got started in woodworking, um, and no. <laughs> okay, yeah, tool <laughs> belts are one.
1: they're clunky, you know, because they're right at your waistline, which is where all the tool t- t- tools are typically at. The workbench is at about that height, so if you got all this crap, hat you're you know, it just makes your hips bigger and you're bumping into things. So. I don't know, I don't like tool belts. An apron, I can deal with. A tool belt, not so much.
0: Yeah, I think I, I bashed my hammer up against you know the workbench one too many times. I think I dented at least one or two projects <laughs> when the hammer swung around and hit stuff. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, all right. So we had about 35% of people saying that they're useful in certain situations. Uh, 22% said that they're totally useless for woodworkers. 24% said, I don't own one and I have no desire to. And uh, 14% said that I could take them or leave them. And only 5% said they're the handiest and most useful thing in the shop. Ooh. There you go. Good to know.
0: So in that case, I am not investing in my tool belt company.
1: I would not. No. I would hold back, at least not for woodworkers, maybe for like job site construction dudes. That might be good.
0: There you go, yeah. No no logo of Matt's Basement Workshop on it.
1: (laughs) Right. All right, let's move into our kickback. We've got uh, quite a few here. So Matt, you want to jump in and grab those?
0: Okay, well this first one came in from Rob and this was in response to the pipe organ desk that we talked about and by we, I mean you and Shannon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pipe organ desk from last week. A video of Kagan Schaefer demonstrating the pipe organ, and this is over at YouTube. So, I guess if you if you're done admiring the way the pipe organ works and you or looks, and you want to see how it actually works, definitely check out this video. Have you watched it? No, not yet.
1: Yeah, it's actually really cool in terms of like. Like we had talked about last week, the just how you would make something like this happen, but there's a point as you're watching it, and I don't mean this to sound like disparaging because it's an amazing work of art what this guy's done, but it's like turn this thing i mean it's there's so much things that you, like so many things you need to do to pop a drawer out <laughs> <laughs> like it really does become this sort of academic exercise as opposed to you know it certainly doesn't serve any real purpose in what it does, but it is still. One of the coolest things, like the guy's mind behind this, to put that much effort into just something that secretly pops open a drawer, is just that that borderline like insane genius level of thinking, Mm -hmm. you know that that you have to respect. Um, But it still begs the question, why?
0: (laughs) I wonder if that's like the equivalent of a passwords back then. Like, I forget my password all the time. I want you know, and I know we had this discussion before, but I wonder if like back then that was the same way. If there was a way to like help you remember how to get it open.
1: Right, f- right. Forget the passwords. <laughs> <All right.
0: laughs> <laughs> nice. Anyways, though, so we'll move on now after that embarrassing one. Uh, this comes in from Ron, and Ron says, I'm trying to catch up and have a few questions about using a vacuum sealer, such as Food Saver for storing unused finishes in mason jars. Years ago, before the web, I posted the question on Usenet Wood Forum about how, <clears throat> excuse me, how could glue dry in a vacuum bag given it wasn't dry in the plastic bottle. The answer I was given was that pulling a vacuum lowers the boiling point of liquids, causing the glue to cure. The question I have now, if this is true, wouldn't a finish cure as well in a vacuum situation? Couldn't you be shortening the life of the finish inadvertently? It may be that Bloxygen is the right answer. I don't know. I don't know. And that, I don't know is from Ron, and uh, I, I have to give him a I don't know also. Makes makes sense if you think about it that way, but Yeah,
1: I gave it some thought. And you know, the thing is the glues are curing primarily by evaporation of the right. liquid, right? Which is why they don't dry in the bottle. Right. Finishes it's not an oxidiza- oxidization. <laughs> oxidization. <laughs> I'm gonna put this in with the flammable from a couple of <laughs> weeks ago. <laughs> oxidization. Um yeah, there it's oxidation is what cures the finishes that we were talking about, like the oil-based finishes, but there is a initial evaporation of the, you know, the liquid, like the mineral spirits or naphtha, whatever it is that's in there, the petroleum distillate evaporates first and then oxidation allows it to cure. So it is, it is a good question. Like it does, lowering the boiling point, if that's in fact what happens when you evacuate the, um, all the air out of it and you create a vacuum, does that, do something to somehow like cause the evaporation to occur that would then allow the curing to occur but there's no oxygen so it can't cure like right so i don't know i don't know what what yeah. that would do i mean here's the other thing are we pulling enough of a vacuum that it really is a true vacuum that that would lower the boiling pressure i don't know exactly how that would work if we're talking about like just those little benchtop sort of canning pumps. But either way, I don't know that pulling a vacuum over your finish, it just sounds like messy work and probably not the greatest idea. It was, <laughs> exactly. It was just kind of like- That's
2: like a, that's a really sticky whoopee cushion in other words.
1: Yeah, and it was something that we had talked about just like I wonder what would happen if, but to me it sounds much better to just use Bloxygen and, you know, well, uh, displace and, and the gas and that's it. Evaporation
2: is not some sort of magical way to destroy things. You know, it evaporates and it's got to go somewhere. So- Unless they're diffusing through the bag itself, the you know you lower the boiling point and those whatever the the solvents or whatever flash off. But if they can't get out of the bag, they're still there. Yeah, right? you, know? <laughs> they're, they're, you lower the boiling point and they flash to gas basically. But then the gas is, I don't know. Well, I guess you know, in the, the
1: case of the, the glue, I'm thinking you know part, the moisture is being driven into the wood fibers. So mm-hmm. e- even if things aren't fully yeah. evaporating into like a gaseous state. The liquid is getting pulled out of the glue and into the fibers. So I don't know. Maybe the glue isn't even fully cured until you let that bag open, and then everything just completely dries. But it's cured enough to hold your layers of material together. I don't know. We're getting kind of uninformed science-y here, but <laughs> this is a, a
0: perfect uh, question for Bill Nye the Science Guy. Which guys? You want to? Which one of you wants to contact him? Oh, there you go.
1: <laughs> Not <laughs> Not it. All
0: right, well, let, let's move on before our heads explode here and everybody else's too. And uh, this one comes in from Kenji's and he says, hey guys, keep using that oxygen to help keep your finishes fresh. Methane is lighter than air, so farting into your cans of finish won't work. I learned that the hard way. You know, mm-hmm. I obviously was uh, absent for when you guys discussed this, so um, I feel really awkward now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, All right, and know. then the last one, let's bring this home because this one's going to help clean things up. Yay! And this is from James... Hope this helps clean things up. I saw that pipe organ desk that was mentioned in Wood Talk 147 last year. When I was just starting to get into woodworking, I was online looking at everything I could concerning woodworking from that pipe organ desk. My searches led me to the Ruttingers furniture. I've included a couple pictures and videos below. And would you ever want to accomplish anything like this in your lifetime? Is what James asking us. And if you take a look, there is one, two, three, four videos over at YouTube. And again, this is yet another example of, uh, engineering taken to the nth degree. And I know that I would forget that half of these uh, drawers even exist if I were to make this hmm. or own it. This is really, we're
1: turning into a gadgety furniture show lately. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very <laughs> well, much. If you so. guys remember,
2: we actually mentioned this on a wood talk.
1: Yeah, we did. I don't know.
2: A while ago, this, but I don't know whether it's all four of those videos, but at least one of them, I know we mentioned.
1: Yeah, now I actually I'm including the ones that we didn't mention in, in the post okay. for this because there were the first one we did talk about, but the, there's a couple more. So if you're into this sort of gadgety uh oh, what do you call those machines? I can't remember the name.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the um oh. oh goodness gracious. Ah. Yeah, like the mousetrap kind of a yes, thing. Yes,
1: exactly. Like the beginning of Pee-Wee's big adventure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um that type of thing. If you're into those wacky but amazingly cool, weird takes a lot of time to do kind of things like that. Um, <laughs> this is this is almost like, uh, I mean, the amount of craftsmanship that goes into these, aside from the gadgetry, is just unbelievable. Um, it's amazing stuff. So, yeah, seems like a lot of things that could break over time. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But they're still together. I mean, they're giving them the white glove treatment and everything at this point. But um, you know, they're still operational, which is pretty cool. All right, let's move into our email. Got quite a few, six of them, in fact. Uh, Rube Goldberg,
0: that's the name of thank it. Thank you. Rube Goldberg. I, oh, yeah. Like based that.
1: on that. Thank you so much. That's uh, thank you, one Google. less
0: text I have to send out at <laughs> one in the morning. <laughs> there you go. All right, so Michael
1: had a question. He says, years ago, I built a bed, and it's waiting to be sanded and finished. The slats have been sitting on the bottom shelf of a table, and when I built some of Mark's cutting boards, the mineral oil bottle leaked out onto the slats. Now, I'm not sure if that little bit of oil into the quarter sawn white oak will matter or not. I'm planning on putting on dye first, followed by shellac, and then gel stain, followed by water locks. My first thought is to just sand and hope for the best. Second thought is to redo all the slats and then proceed. Um, you know, this is one of those things where you're probably just going to have to try some things because I wouldn't want to say you're going to have to do a do-over, but ultimately, a non-curing oil Uh, absorbing into the wood is certainly not a good thing if you're going to follow it up with what I'm I'm guessing is probably a water-based dye. So what I would recommend is giving that thing a good mineral spirits bath. Uh, Wipe it down, maybe get some steel wool or an abrasive pad of some sort. Give it a good wipe down, scrub it real good, wipe off the excess, let it dry for another day or two, and then I would sand it. And at that point, experiment with your dye. I mean if you're thinking about remaking these slats anyway, what does it hurt to try to dye one and and see if it absorbs the color and if everything works. Um, at that point, if you hit it with shellac, it probably will be okay and you could proceed with the rest of the finish but you need to make sure that those slats don't look dramatically different from the rest of the pieces even if they take the color. Um, it may not take the color at the same rate as the other pieces will but I'd say give it a shot first. I don't think it's uh A definite no, but it it just might be salvageable, but I would try to clean it up first, get as much oil off the surface as possible, uh, then sand, and then proceed with your finish tests. Maybe this is a naming
2: convention, but doesn't the mattress go on the slats? Like,
1: (laughs) does it matter what it looks like? Yes, it does, Shannon, because we're very (laughs) picky about these things.
2: I'm just thinking rub some shellac on it and throw the
0: mattress on it. Rub some shellac on it. You're not a real woodworker because little details like that don't bother you enough. Get out of this group. You're the kind of person
1: who wouldn't remove the plain marks from the bottom of your tabletops, aren't you? No,
0: definitely not. It's just called lazy. (laughs) Poor craftsmanship and lazy. True that. All right. I'm more upset for Mark because apparently he was making Mark some cutting boards and now the surprise is ruined. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Apparently. I want my
1: cutting boards, dude. They sound like they're all oiled up. Send them over. I think we should start that. That
2: should be a new movement. Since Mark's website launched 1,000 cutting boards, we should, as a
1: community, make 1,000 <laughs> cutting boards and send them to Mark. You can, you can never have enough. You know what's ironic about the whole cutting board thing? You know how many cutting boards I've made? Um, one. One? <laughs> Three. Three. Three and only like three of that end grain cutting board that I built on the show, I only made three of them total. And then beyond that, just cutting boards in general, maybe a total of five, including those three. So (laughs) so it's not like I'm like the cutting board guy. I just made a video like six years ago. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) It's kind of funny.
2: I could just see you though. If we sent a thousand cutting boards to you, be like, he cut it, cut some chicken on it. All right, just throw that out. <laughs> Let's get another one in a drawer and like pull out <laughs> off a stack of cutting boards. These
0: are disposable. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because with that question always comes in, like, how do I clean this? Just throw it away. I've got a thousand <laughs> just, of them. There's just, just a make back a drawer over there. All right. <laughs> totally.
2: All right. All righty. This is an email from Dominic. Uh, he says, "I was watching one of Shannon's videos where he was using a hand drill, and I was wondering if there were advantages to this." Hand sawing and planing make a lot of sense to me, and I really think they are things you can learn a lot from, even if you go the power route when you're able. But hand drilling seems kind of like falling down a rabbit hole and doing things just for the sake of not using power. I was wondering if I was missing something. Hmm. Um, Well, not knowing which video you were talking about, um, if it's a brace and bit we're talking about, um, I do think that there is a serious advantage there because... The sheer torque you can get and depth of cut and size of the hole you can get with a typical, you know, Jenning or Irwin style auger bit and a brace uh, will exceed that of what's capable on most drill presses. Certainly there's the whole alignment thing. You need to feel comfortable in drilling with perfect 90 degree hole, but it's just a heck of a lot more flexible. You're not going to be able to get a hand drill that's going to be able to accomplish that same type of power. Well, I suppose you could, but you know, you're talking like really really expensive like go to Dewalt or go to Home Depot and rent the you know the 50 pound Hilti thing that drills into concrete slabs but for your typical shop um the the brace and bit can't be beat when it comes to really really deep holes um if he says a hand drill when someone says a hand drill I tend to think of those egg beater type things
0: yeah
2: um you know there there's a lot more tactile feedback I think with a hand drill but you know let's be honest it is you can get really, really good results from a cordless drill too. So in some respects, it is a little bit like falling down the rabbit hole. Um, A lot of the hand tools that I use, I use because I really enjoy hand tool woodworking. I enjoy the historical aspect of it. I really like the, I don't know, the mellowness of it, I guess. Um, And for me, I don't really ever have to worry about recharging batteries. And I've been through my share of really cheap hand drills before. I really like my egg beater, and that's what I use. So I, you know, I'm not going to say there's a huge advantage to using one of those over your cordless drill, so keep using it. Um, but I would not discount the brace and bit when it comes to sheer power.
1: Well, when we're talking about the the bit and brace, and I think what the way you describe that really put it in a light that I can understand why it's something that you would want and need to do. Because if you're if you're going into that hand tool realm anyway, you have more instances than I do where you need to hog out material for something like a mortise. I'm mm-hmm. going to have other ways to do that. So when, I, when, when you say, oh, it's great when you need to drill a big, deep hole, the only time I could think that I would ever really need to do that is on a workbench top, <laughs> Right. You know, and then it's yeah. done and I never have to do it again. So I've never had an inclination to go the bit and brace route. Um, but if I were more of a hand tool woodworker where a lot of my mortises, maybe even just for like a trestle table or something, I want to hog out that manually, well, that's going to be the best tool for it because I'm doing the hand tool thing in the first place
2: yeah one begets the other i exactly. I actually just did a a two inch by four inch mortise uh this weekend or last weekend mm-hmm. and uh chucked up a two inch brace and thing and it was awesome
1: yeah yeah and for me i'm not going fi- to i'm not going to do that because i'm gonna find some other way to make a large mortise like that. I won't need to do that, so it kind of feeds itself in that way okay matt you're up
0: all right, well, this came, this question came in from Dwayne, and Dwayne says, I'm making a dresser, and I want to bevel the bottom edge of the top. I'm wondering if I can make it out of solid wood. Is this going to cause trouble with wood movement? The other alternative is using ply with a veneer. The only problem is I'll have to put an, an edge of solid wood. Any tep, Any tips for blending this seamlessly? Any help would be great. So first, going back to the first part of the question, which is, he wants to put a bevel on the bottom edge of the top and he's concerned making it out of solid wood that if there's going to be trouble with wood movement. I I guess I don't see where there would be any problem with the wood movement, assuming, and I've done this quite frequently on many of my projects where I like to put a nice little bevel on it. It just kind of helps with the design. It takes a really chunky uh, piece of wood and kind of makes it look thinner or even vice versa. It can kind of even give it that little illusion that it's a little bit thicker. But when I put that bevel on there, I never take it. And I'm wondering if this is what what dwayne is thinking, it, taking that bevel all the way to what like where it would meet say the 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 top rail or something, I usually leave a little space in there, so the the chamfer is just a it's just a simple little detail that that bevel is just a, a detail that's gonna stick away from the body of the uh the actual dresser itself, so I don't see any problems whatsoever when it comes to the wood movement portion of it because it's it's just simply a detail it's not. Um, anything structurally. I, so I, I I was reading this and I
1: had trouble understanding exactly what he was asking. Um, mm-hmm. Like I don't I didn't understand what the relevance of the bevel to wood movement was. Is that what he's yeah. concerned? That I it's had going to read it a to, couple times.
2: I guess he's just thinking because it's thinner on the edge that that part will dry. You
0: know, the moisture maybe? content will drop faster. But right, because um, well, like I said, the only thing I could think of is if he was thinking like the whole thing would be beveled right back to the body. You know, right, like yeah, the, so th- so if even it trims- then,
2: I mean, it, what do you got, like a like a 12-inch overhang? I mean, <laughs> even if it's like 2-inch overhang, I mean, we're talking about a dresser here, right? So, right. you know, even some of like the, the shaker dressers that have the really long top, I think they overhang like 8 inches at most on the edges. Um, There's really not that much wood we're talking
0: about here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, in other words, I, I, I don't see any problems with it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, cool. and then now with the other part, any tips for blending, say, a solid piece uh, to uh, a plywood uh, a veneer? This just simply comes down to trying to get the best match that you possibly can, and even then you're still going to, because you're essentially working with two different pieces of wood, they're, sometimes they're going to stain a little bit differently. I, I great example for me is I have um, a, a bookcase that I built for Samantha and the top was built with this really beautiful cherry veneer that I had, this cherry plywood. And then the edging around it is is solid wood. And I know some people get very concerned if you say miter the corners, but plywood doesn't move. The only thing that's going to be moving is the solid wood itself. You're using a typically a very thin piece at the most uh and so i'm not really concerned when it comes to the actual miters themselves the biggest concern is going to be trying to match the grains and the colors and that's just a matter of doing some test pieces when it comes down to it taking some scraps and just playing around with them and really just trying to eyeball it and see what happens when you put your finish on it
1: well and you're always going to have two cross grain situations with the trim like you can't. can't Like if you if everything was just with the grain, you could probably disguise it. But if, exactly, no matter what, with a square piece of plywood, there's always two that are going to mm-hmm. be cross grain, and you'll see that glue line. Just that's the way it is, and that you know you can get the colors matched up, but there will always be some visible element if someone like really inspects it closely. Exactly, right. right. I, I think that, the that's best
2: you, way. I'm sorry, Matt. Go ahead. Oh no, no, go ahead. I think the best way, rather than trying to do it seamlessly, is highlight
1: it, accent it, you, you know, know throw exactly. throw an
2: inlay around there, like so. A, you can do no inlay whatsoever and just say, "Hey, there's a frame around this," and and you know I'm not trying to cover that up. Or put you know an ebony or holly or a checkerboard inlay or something around there. Now someone has to look at, we'll say cherry on one side and cherry on the other side, and it's it's punctuated by this thing in the middle. And a, the the difference in color is going to be less noticeable because your eye is drawn to that contrast. And b, no one's going to care because mm-hmm. there's a line there. And they know that it's a different piece of wood.
0: Yeah, so exactly. That's where I was going to go with it. Yeah, embrace it. Just run with it. Just have a lot of fun with that kind of a thing. Because the only way you're going to come We're close to it don't is don't know
1: it. it. I was going to say it's like he's rapping. When when did that I, happen? Wicky wicky whack. Let's move on to the next
0: question. Word.
1: Oh. All right, Uh, Justin had a question here. He says, I have a very small space in my garage and I'm starting to get into woodworking. I have some basics like a table saw, bandsaw, miter box, and router table. I've been using big box store wood for uh, my wood supply but would like to venture into other hardwoods that aren't available there. My question is, if I use the router table to joint the edges, can I get away with a power planer, the handheld one to flatten faces? I'm on a limited budget and also space. So here's the thing, I've got one of these things and much like a lot of people from what I'm reading, I have never really used it. Um, it's one of those things that has just never come into my mind like, oh, this is a great solution for, for this particular problem. So I went on Facebook and asked uh, some of the folks who follow my page, have you used one of these and what do you think about it? Like, Does it work for you for flattening the face of a board? And it's kind of mixed, very polar responses. There are people who, who are saying no way, uh, if it was a board that's that's within the width of the tool, fine, like an edge or a, a narrow board, that's fine. But if it's more than the width of the tool, no way. And then another person actually, let's see, um, John Mercer says, the key to using one to flatten wide boards is that the edges of the blade need a little tuning rather than being square this way. Uh, oh yeah, so basically like you would nick the edges of a hand plane to not have those uh, track marks on the outside edges. So right. you know, so there are plenty of people in this list. If you can go to my Facebook page and catch this post, you'll get a lot of useful information. But a lot of people are saying yes, but it does take a little bit of practice, a little bit of tuning. But then there are other people who are saying I wouldn't touch it with a ten foot pole. So <laughs> yeah. Well, the um, other
2: thing, I I used to have one ages ago and um like the thinnest cut it could take was like one 128th, mm-hmm. which is still pretty thick yeah. in terms of hand planes. Mm-hmm. It's not a big deal when you're talking power planers because you're removing like the whole board at yeah. once. Yeah. But the, the issue is the tracks you create, that one 128th, supposedly we can see and feel a thousandth of an inch, right? With our fingertips. Mm-hmm. One 128th is a lot more than yeah. that. Significant. Um, if I remember correctly, Nick Offerman, um, of Parks and Rec fame uses these to dimension his slabs like from the lumber yard like to get a feel for the grain. Right. He quickly hits it with one of these little hand planer things um, and then he does his whole like router slab jig deal for the finish surface.
1: Yeah.
2: That um, doesn't really answer the question, but that that could be, I could see that actually being a really cool kind of um, lumber yard type tool. Well, and you know, I could keep also keep it in the trunk of your car or whatever. Well, when you've got Buy that the board uh, first. when you've got Buy that big first.
1: slab that's like too big for your for your uh, jointer. and You want to flatten one face. I could see it being used for that to roughly flatten a face and then send it through your planer and then again flip the piece and clean up the initially hand plane side. Um, but for like a finished surface, even if you could get it relatively flat, I don't know that it's going to be there and he's going to have to, he doesn't have a planer so he's talking about using this on both sides of the board I'm not sure that's going to get him where he needs to be based on the general consensus that I'm I'm reading out there, even if he can get get it roughly flat. Um, what I would suggest as an alternative, Justin, is to really think about uh, a hand tool for, for this instead. Something like, and I've talked about this in the past, one of my new favorite tools is my low angle jack plane. Um, if you can get yourself a, a decent priced low angle jack plane, a couple different blades, a bevel up version, and Get a couple different uh, irons in there, you're going to have a very versatile tool that will, with enough practice, be able to give you a good flat finished surface on both sides. It's a lot more, you know, uh, effort has to go into it, but if you get there, it's going to be well worth the, the time and practice to do that. Well, here's the thing combine that jack plane with your
2: power planer, you know, yeah, rather, do the rough than, work rather first. than starting because a rough's on board, it's all fuzzy and everything like that, and you've got to take a pretty heavy cut to do that. So, mm-hmm. if you can yeah. get it relatively flat and it's got plane tracks all over the place you can make quick work of that with a jack plane true set kind of medium to fine so in the whole christopher schwartz course medium and fine hierarchy he starts with damn course then moves to course then medium then fine
1: that's yeah that's a great idea good solution so if he's already got the 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 hand plane or the uh, power hand planer why not that's fantastic i like it all right you're up shannon I am.
2: You're up. I guess I better like pull this back up again instead of looking at that video of the pipe organ. Um, Okay. All right. I was watching cat videos, I admit. Um, Where are we here? Want me to read it for you? Kyle, right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kyle wants to know, he was just wondering what our feelings are regarding lathe tools Do you have a preference between a traditional steel tool that requires sharpening versus the tool system, like the hunter tool system, that has a replaceable cutter head? Um, I got to say, before we go into this, we've got several turning questions this week, and Hmm. I'm not sure what
1: impression we've given our listeners (laughs) That we know anything
2: about turning oh, I don't know someone
1: um, who builds a new lathe every week, maybe yeah, yeah well, that, there might be something to do with that.
2: fine. <laughs> building a lathe and being good at turning are two different
1: things.
2: They just <laughs> you assume. watch me turn sometime, um, however, this is one I threw in here because I do have some opinions on this um, i um I have easy wood tools, um, I actually had a hunter tool, a hunter hollower for a while. Um, To be honest, the hunter tool system, that particular one, I could not get the hang of it. There was a, um, it it still required a certain presentation. You had to present the blade in in such a way or it didn't work. Hmm. Um, What's, with some of the newer ones and there's a bunch of different ones besides easy wood tools now, they were kind of the first ones and probably the highest quality ones. These, there is, there's only one presentation. There's a bar that fits, you know, goes flat down on the, on the tool rest and you're at the proper presentation. And that's really the, the difference. You have to understand how to present the cutting edge with your more traditional tools. Um, and there's a lot of nuance as well. By, by changing that, that angle of presentation, it can take a heavier or lighter cut. You can change it completely and get a scraping cut, et cetera. So there's a lot more variables and kind of, for lack of a better term, moving parts to the presentation of a traditional tool. So with that comes more of a, of a learning curve but also becomes a lot more flexibility and a lot more capability than a fixed presentation tool. So um, a lot of people are of the same mind that these kind of um, replaceable tool systems, they're really, really good for kind of rough shaping. And going back to what we were just talking about, they're kind of the coarse tool. And then you go to a traditional um, sharpenable high-speed steel or whatever steel tool for that final pass or that final cut to really get that beautiful slicing cut because these other um, fixed blade tools really are just scraping tools. Um, There's a lot of people that I know Easywood Tools talks about it. It's not quite a scraping tool. I don't understand the geometry enough to really be able to say that it's not a scraping tool, but scraping like sandpaper versus hand planes, it will abrade the surface more than it will slice the surface. So there's no question you're going to get a better Surface feel and and finish with that peeling cut rather than a scraping cut. So I, I can't really come down and say this is where you need to be. Um, I was really heavily in the in the Easy Wood Tool camp um, for just the ease of use, and they they made wood turning so much more fun because I didn't have to worry about a bunch of stuff. Like just point and shoot, basically. Um, as I have gotten a little bit more specifically into the lower RPMs of my foot powered lathes um i am going back to a traditional tool more and i'm using my fixed i don't even know what to call those my carbide tools if you will as a roughing tool more than anything else so i do think there's a place for both of them sorry to be on the fence with that but um yeah what do you guys think fence
1: sitter <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Me.
0: you've been hanging out with us too much <laughs> uh yeah
1: <laughs> Um I'm kind of on the same fence. I think you know some people like the simpler tools and are better off using them, or at least it uh, is a lower it lowers the barrier to entry and maybe at some point um I was using easy wood tools on the recent tilt uh, tilttop table, and it was the first time I was using them, but I got to a point where I was like oh, I really need my um, my bowl gouge, my super flute yeah. bowl gouge for this. I can't get this the profile I'm trying to get with this tool. I'm sure with some practice I probably could pull it off, but I felt it was just easier and I got better results with uh, the more traditional tools. So I don't think, I don't know that you would, I don't know, I guess someone would get good at using those scraper style yeah, tools sure. and can do amazing things with them. But um, I... If you can turn something great with it, who gives a crap what's on the tip? Right, exactly. Well, here's yeah. the thing too. The traditional turning
2: tool, I know personally it taught me a lot about how an edge tool cuts. Yeah. The whole rubbing the bevel idea, um, it's really transferable outside of turning as well. Mm-hmm. Work with a with a standard chisel bevel down, and you'll very quickly know what I'm talking about. Being able to support behind the cutting edge and present the tool in such a way You know, you you lift the handle, you rotate the handle, you move it side to side. There's really three different directions in how you present that cutting edge to the wood. And those tiny little changes will produce very different cuts. So it's a lot more confusing and a lot more difficult right off the bat, but you learn so much about how steel cuts wood and how that wood responds Mm -hmm. that I think you lose with a kind of a fixed presentation style.
0: Sure, sure. Nice. Nice. I got nothing for you on that one. I'm still trying to figure <laughs> out what, what I like to do at all. <laughs> cool. Great Sweet.
2: tools to start with when you're just getting started and turning though. Please don't misunderstand me. Um, I'm a big fan of them. Carbide tools that is.
1: I'm watching this YouTube video now that someone put in the show notes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, let's, let's
0: not uh, watch t- YouTube during a show. Uh, Matt, you're up. Oh, hold on. i got to finish up this YouTube video myself. Actually, okay. So this one comes in from Brandon. And Brandon says, just want to know if there is an adjustment that can stop my planer from the snipe. I have a DeWalt DW735. I know the trick with oversizing my desired piece and then cutting off the snipe. Just want to know if there is a way to adjust the planer to make this headache stop. No. Next question, please.
1: Can I answer like I, Shannon?
0: <laughs>
1: my, my jointer plane never snipes.
2: <laughs> See and, and you know the irony to this is I actually responded to Brandon via email <laughs> yeah. with what I thought was a well thought out response because uh, I have this
1: planer. You, well you do own a planer, so you're uh yes. you own two at this point, right? Yeah, well one of them's still covered in Cosmoline. <laughs> doesn't so. doesn't matter, you still have two. <laughs> Although just today
2: I walked into the general manager's office of the yard and he had a printout from Grizzly on on there on his desk. Mm. And um, we're actually going to knock out a wall in one of the rooms of the, of the mill workshop and add in a, a they're going to get a 15 inch planer oh. just, and then we've just bought a five horsepower shaper for smaller kind of, if we need to do samples or we need to do fill in projects or whatever. Cause the mill is not set up for, if you want to run less than 500 lineal feet, it's a major pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, well, shoot, I haven't like unwrapped the grizzly yet. And if they're going to get one at the, at the yard. Maybe I can just take my lumber down there and <laughs> that won't work though. Cause I don't, it's not a good idea to drive 30 minutes on a weekend. Anyway, <laughs> back to Brandon's question. Uh, this is what I, I wrote him. I don't know if he has the adjustable tables, but one of the biggest knocks of the DeWalt 735 is it doesn't come with the extension tables. Okay. That was um, my
0: question for you about that one.
2: Yeah, that made a huge difference. There was a, I don't want to say significant amount of snipe, but it's certainly noticeable um, when I added the the adjustment tables, and there's a little bit of tweaking you can do there, that made a huge difference. Uh, but the other thing is, is um, when the, what what causes snipe is there are two rollers, an infeed and outfeed roller, and a planer. And when the board is captured by only one of those rollers, it tends to kind of do a wheelie, if you will. When it comes in on Yee-hee. the infeed side, it grabs it and it forces the board down, and it lifts the the backside up a little bit. And on the way out, it does the same thing. So as it changes that angle of the board, the the knives will take a, a slightly deeper cut on the on the initial part. So um, I actually found just simple, not heavy pressure, but you know light pressure on the board on the extension table itself as it's fed in until that second roller grabs, mm-hmm. and then on the outfeed side, light pressure as the board's coming out and it lets go of that second roller. That helped a lot. Um, I can't say it almost eliminated it, but it made it unnoticeable at that point.
0: Hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, one trick I found is I'm feeding it through the uh, the little rigid that I have. This doesn't do anything for the first board that you're pushing through, at least the first end. But if you if you gang them up, if you can do that, possibly depending on the how long the boards are, how much support you have at either end. But if you gang them up, oftentimes I find that that helps to eliminate. As one piece is going in, you know, typically one end won't be affected by it. One sure. end of, you know, the first one, the beginning of the other one, uh, that really, really does it. But yeah, like we, what you're describing there, kind of holding it down, uh, it does help to eliminate much of or minimize, not eliminate, minimize what, what's actually going to happen on there. So, I mean, there's uh, nothing, there's nothing that beats good in feed and out feed
2: support too. Yeah. You're talking that about is an A board you know, put a roller stand back there or run around to the other side and, and play catch. Right. Um, that's going to cause a lot of snipe if you just let the, you know, the weight of an eight-foot board cantilevered out there like that. Um,
1: and lighten your cut, you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah, well, and speaking of the infeed and outfeed tables, one thing that I've read that some people do is they actually install the tables intentionally so that they're tilting up just a little bit. to to sort of simulate that lifting on both ends so you don't actually have to do it yourself. They're just naturally going up in an angle and that supposedly for some people can help. Um, One thing, I've tried everything there is out there, all the standard remedies that uh, people talk about. I've tried that on my planer and I still had snipe. So I called some of the technicians at Powermatic and they said, one thing you may want to try is you know how some, I don't know if all models have this, but there are rollers on the bed that just kind of mm-hmm. help, you know, and they're basically there to help guide rough wood. And if you're not sending and skip planing really rough boards, you can bring those all the way down. They shouldn't, uh, and I had mine just like tweaked so that they were just at, like, uh, at the surface so they would kiss the the material as it goes through. But right. they they said bring them all the way down. They shouldn't even be a factor. And I did that and surprisingly, that has improved. It hasn't gotten rid of, but has improved the snipe issue. And now, when I butt my boards up against one another and I run a series of them through, almost all of them come out nearly perfect with only a little bit of snipe. So that's really? something. Yeah, that's something that I was not expecting. And I haven't heard in all the traditional snipe remedies that we hear about. Um, well, so that,
2: Brandon, they don't have those rollers on the 735, so just ignore what Mark just said. <laughs> yes, ignore <laughs> me. Um, but that I, that's interesting because we do exactly the opposite at the Millworks. Oh, really? Like we, it's called a tracer, the wheel that runs underneath whatever is being molded or mm-hmm. plain. There's a, there's a, you bring that tracer to bear so that it basically, precisely supports the board. Um, that's really weird. I can't imagine why that would work. <laughs> Well, I guess one, because one more
0: thing of- I would suggest not doing is having my dad help you play anything because he'd be <laughs> on the backside, and I said, "Don't touch it till it gets all the way through," because I don't want anything happening, and then he would yank and hear, "What are you doing over there?" <laughs> nice. Um, I should also mention, back in Wood Talk episode
1: fifty-two, and I, I did a little search on the website, so we had a question about this in like episode sixty-something, in which we referred back to fifty-two. So now I'm going to refer back to 52 as well or I could just refer back to the 60 something and just kind of create this chain of references. But We would definitely get more traffic that way. <laughs> yeah, but so if we, in next week's feedback, please tell
2: us if we said something completely opposite of what we just said. There you go. Well, I'm sure, Highly likely.
1: Yeah, I'm sure in episode 52 I give all the standard recommendations that everyone always gives that uh, don't always work. Um, so go check that out. It's awesome. All right. Uh, iTunes reviews. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, just look us up in the iTunes store. Click on ratings and reviews and uh, you can ask Matt. I don't know. Ask him whatever you want to. He'll answer any question.
0: Yeah, I am. I'm, a, I'm an open book. An it, open just go book. ahead. Just do it. it. Sometimes you'll get a quest, an answer that you wish you'd never asked the question.
1: <laughs> That's right. It'll just go, go on and on and on. Yes. Um, we'd like to thank Coley K- Kowell- Music. Coley Music? Probably Chelly. Chelly music? I don't know. What do I know? Uh, he says be- or she? I can't tell. Says best prod- podcast ever. Being new to woodworking, I was told about this podcast and Mark, Matt, and Shannon sites by a friend. I love the podcast and listen to it while in the shop and on the way to work. Keep up the good work, and I'll keep on listening. Well, thank you. You have great friends. quality music. Definitely. Remember today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com and Arbortech at ArbortechUSA.com and we'd like to thank uh, recurring donor Mark M for making a generous donation. We appreciate that Mark. And if you too would like to help out with a donation you could do that by going to WoodTalkShow.com and you look over in that left-hand column you're going to see some blue links for a $2, $1, like really small amount uh, monthly donations that just help us keep the lights on. And you could also make a one-time donation if you want to do that. And if you don't want to make any donation at all, that's okay. You could still hit the play button and the audio will still play. It's all right. free.
0: We'll just stare at you, like, kind of grudgingly. Just screw. <laughs> we'll
1: give you that evil cheapo. eye when you, while you're listening. We're looking at you. And we are, like, on the page, like, on the left hand side in our bios. So you could just imagine where, like, those plates, yeah. where the eyeballs, they're Jesus plates, where the eyeballs following you around. I was going to say, we're
0: watching you all the time. That's just and that, what it's that like. That
2: sweater that Matt wears is rather hypnotic.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is.
0: In more ways than one, you should try wearing it. Mm hmm true.
1: Alright Matt, you want to give them that contact info and we'll get out of here.
0: All right. Hey, folks, you have a comment, question, or topic suggestion. You know what? You have several different ways to contact us. You can leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is wood Talk Online. You can call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. And because Shannon doesn't use really any power tools, he has no excuse not to answer the phone because he'll always be able to hear it. Uh, you can email <laughs> us at WoodTalkOnline at gmail.com or you can leave us a comment on our WoodTalk Facebook page. Hey, and if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at Wood. Talkshow.com, and oh, that's all I got.
1: Okay, very yeah. nice. Hey. <laughs> hey, did you happen to catch Shannon's reading of the contact info last week? It was quite elegant. It was oh, awesome.
0: Th- actually, I was going to try and make it into a ringtone, but it's too long.
1: <laughs> it's a little bit <laughs> long. <laughs> all right, well, uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and I guess we'll catch you next week. See ya Come on Handrail Users Unite. Boo.